Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Dream on thy cousins smothered in the tower. Let us be laid within thy bosom, Richard, and weigh thee down to ruin, shame, and death. Thy nephew's souls bid thee despair and die. That, that, um, <laughs> I, can, I can barely speak after that. that. <laughs> Out of terror. Uh, because, of course, <laughs> you told me. Uh, so, welcome, everybody, to the rest of history. We're doing this podcast about the princes in the tower. Tom Holland has absolutely got me here under false pretenses because he told me that he was going to do a devastating impersonation of, <laughs> of, of, they, of a creepy boy. <laughs> they were creepy boys. I mean, I defy anyone to listen to that and not be terrified, scared out of their wits. I can imagine even now that listeners are, are, are cowering <laughs> behind the sofas or under creepy. their beds out of dread. So, that, so, was, that, was, that was wet. That was Fotherington Thomas. It wasn't. That it was, was terrifying. It was. Despair. Hello, birds. Hello, Sky. Despair and die. <laughs> terrifying. Uh, and they were, of course, the princes in the tower, uh, Edward V and his younger brother, yeah. uh, Richard of Shrewsbury, who in Shakespeare's play, Richard III, appear to him on the eve of the Battle of Bosworth, along with the ghosts of everybody else that Richard has murdered. Uh, and or, or has he? Yes. Uh, well, in, the, in Shakespeare's play, he yes, he has. I mean, there's no question about that. Uh, okay, and they, of course he has yeah, in Shakespeare's absolutely. play. Absolutely. Uh, and um, it's the uh, actually the second quotation from uh, Richard III that's featured in recent weeks, because we also had one from um, Clarence's dream before Richard murders him by having him dunked in a butt of Malmsey on uh, yeah. Bart Van Loo's f- sensational episode about the uh, the Dukes of Burgundy. So this is, um, uh, we've moved from Burgundy back to England. And Dominic, the question that we're asked, well, actually, the theme is um, Princes in the Tower. But of course, there is the question, which is what happened to them? Were they murdered? And if so, who murdered them? It is the absolute greatest mystery in English history, isn't it? I mean, it's the one that everybody has heard of. It's the most romantic. It's the one that sort of amateur historians still try to solve. And obviously, well, we we shouldn't give away our answer because we do have an answer, don't we? We have collectively. To, I think it's fair do. to say that we've solved the mystery. <laughs> <laughs> I think that might be going too far, but I think we do. We have arrived at a consensus as to who think as to who we think did it. Um, yeah. And we should say that the f- the focus is on the title of this episode is Princes in the Tower rather than Richard III or Henry VII or whatever, um, because we thought that would be a kind of interesting angle. So, uh, Dominic, the Princes in the Tower, let's look at the eldest of them. Uh, the yeah. Edward, who becomes Edward V, and he is born on the 2nd of November, 1470. Uh, and it's not the most propitious circumstances, is it, for him? No, he's born in, so he's born at a place called Cheney Gates, which is the house of the Abbot of Westminster. It's basically next to Westminster Abbey. It's above the and, cloisters, um, isn't it, I think? Yeah, um, I think so. And his mother, so he is the son, we're in, yeah, 1470, he is the son of King Edward IV and his wife, Elizabeth Woodville. Um, but he is born in sanctuary because his father has currently fled and is effectively in exile. Uh, in the latest twist 
of the colossal Game of Thrones inspiring saga that is the Wars of the Roses. Uh, yes. And so his his wife, his queen, Elizabeth Woodville, has taken sanctuary there, uh, as indeed yeah. she will do again subsequently. And we'll come to that. So there's a lot of uh, people claiming sanctuary in this um, episode. But um, you mentioned Wars of the Roses. So let's look at um, Edward's two parents, Edward IV and Elizabeth Woodville. Let's look at Edward IV first. So, I mean, he he has this kind of strange reign. He He, he comes to power um and he rules and then he goes into exile and then he comes back again and that's kind of unique really in in the history of english kings so he is the son of someone who we mentioned in the 12 days of christmas episode richard of york who gave battle in vain in a way this is a kind of sequel to that isn't it richard of york who died at the battle of wakefield um and his head was put on the gates with a paper crown 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 margaret of anjou um and and this so in a way our story picks up straight after that so Richard of York is the Yorkist claimant uh, to Henry the Sixth throne. So, so the English nobility is kind of divided between Lancastrians and Yorkists. And when Richard dies, his claim passes to his eldest son, who is Edward, um, Earl of March, Earl of March I think yeah. he was before, uh, who is this. So he's 18 years old when his father dies. He is... A strapping um, lad. He is an extremely... So, he is the grandfather it will of, of Henry VIII, isn't yeah. he? As it turns out. So he's if you if you listen to our Six Wives of Henry VIII podcast, he is very very similar. Actually, his trajectory is very similar to Henry VIII, isn't it? You can definitely sort of see the 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 genetic inheritance because he's he's huge. You know, he's, what is he six foot four or something? Yeah, uh, which is absolutely colossal. I think, by the I think, the time. I think we may mention this before. I, I I think when and if William Prince William becomes king. Um, he's the only king who will be taller than Edward the Fourth. Is that right? I think so. Yeah, may have got that wrong. Um, but Edward the Fourth is a. Everybody says he is the. He is a very, very impressive person, and he's, he's very. A, he's a massive lad, isn't he? He is a massive. He likes lad. his food. I mean, he likes his drink, and he likes his ladies. Yeah, and, he's, and he likes he is, fighting, and he's very good at fighting. He's the sort of model. He's he's an alpha male, yeah. as Henry the Eighth was when he his grandson will be when when he's young. He's a he's a sort of a roistering, slaughtering, hard living, hard drinking, womanizing. Yeah, he's basically Lad. the guy. The he's basically the guy from the university rugby club. <laughs> he is. He's the president of the kind of college sports society yeah. and all that. Yeah, absolutely, he is. And um, and quite quickly after his father's death, he turns it all around. Um, he wins a couple of battles, most famously the Battle of Towton, which is the bloodiest battle ever fought on English soil. And so by 1461, at the age of, not basically by the time he's turned 19, he's on his way to becoming king, to kicking out the Lancastrians. Um, what does he do? He captures Henry VI. And, and, and he doesn't becomes... kill him, does he? Um, no. Because which is interesting, Margaret actually. of Anjou and uh, their son, Again, confusingly called Edward. I mean, basically everyone's called Edward in this episode, so yeah. many apologies. So let's call him the Lancastrian Edward. Um, yeah. They've gone into exile, so there's no point in killing Henry VI. Um, and in fact, he's a kind of an insurance policy because he's pretty delally by this point. Um, yeah. So he's locked up in the tower. He's looked after quite well, but he's kind of immured away. And Edward sets about establishing the foundations of his regime. It, it speaks well. Fredwood actually, he doesn't kill Henry. I don't think it does at all. 
I think, I think it does. I, no, I think it's pure politics because in due course... Well, of course he well, does the, kill him eventually, yeah, but I mean, <laughs> I think that's reasonable after the, after no, the cash have made a comeback. I think anyway, Edward listen. is completely ruthless. Do you know who he looks like, Tom? Who? If you look at the portrait, he has the face of David Cameron. Which you know, there is something <laughs> David Cameron-esque about him. In that he's, I, I mean, he's ostensibly a kind of impressive figure. He wins, you know, he's very successful at winning things, but ultimately yeah. he becomes a terrible failure. <laughs> right. I mean, I hope no spoilers there because... So Dave, if you're listening. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh. No, I agree. Yeah, there is something of that kind of ruddy-cheeked, posh. Yeah. Yeah, I think there is it, but I think I think that Edward is Edward the Fourth is is a very very ruthless operator. I think if he has to kill people, yeah, he will. But he'll hug a husky first or whatever it is. Hug all that kind he. of thing. Yeah, all that kind yeah. of thing. So so he, um, you know, he. I mean, he's so he's ruling as a usurper basically, um, and so his regime is inherently precarious. There are lots of people who wish him nothing but ill, um, and so he has to tread very very carefully. And obviously, one of the things that uh, a usurping king fresh on the throne has to do, and this is absolutely in the context of everything that uh, Bart van Loo was saying in, in you know, with the episode on the Burgundians, is that there are a lot of predatory foreign powers as well as domestic enemies. Yeah. And so the key thing that an eligible young bachelor on the freshly minted on the throne of England has to do is to marry advantageously. And that means sourcing himself as a, a, a really top quality foreign yeah. bride. Well, I, I, the thing is, Tom, to go back to our Bartlein Van Loo podcast, England is is in this dance, isn't it, with France and Burgundy? Mm. So France and Burgundy are the sort of two neighbouring powers, and England is flitting between the two of them. Mm-hmm. And um, what makes it more complicated, this issue of the bride, is that Edward owes his ascendancy not just to his own sort of strappingness and his martial ability but to a very very powerful patron or ally which is the Richard Neville Earl of Warwick famously Warwick the Kingmaker and Warwick is very keen to have an alliance with France um, and he spends a lot of time you know once Edward is king and yeah. then Castron's being kicked out he spends an enormous amount of time negotiating um, an ally. It's very Henry VIII style. He spends an enormous amount of time in this sort of Thomas Cromwell style enterprise of sorting out an alliance with the French and a marriage alliance and all the rest of it. And investing and then, a lot of his political capital in this very yeah. publicly. And, 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 and he, very, Warwick definitely thinks, you know, Edward is a young man. He's David Cameron. He's my puppet. Um, I, it's very clear I am the power in England and, and getting the alliance and the, 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 the right marriage for his puppets obviously matters enormously to his sense of status and yes. prestige which is why in 1464 in, yeah he is when gutted. the news reaches him <laughs> that edward rather than going for a, a, a french bride or indeed any um foreign bride um has married an english commoner uh, and not just any commoner but a, a woman who is has already been married and has two sons already uh, and this, it, it cannot be overemphasized, is not how English kings are supposed to behave. So I suppose you could say, I mean, isn't, um, so So the person he marries is uh, a woman called Elizabeth Woodville. And basically she's, she's the kind of, uh, so Elizabeth Bowes Lowen, 
Bow's Lion. How do you? Bow's Lion. Bow's Lion. The Queen Mother. The Queen Mother who marries George the Sixth. She marries him uh, when he is not expected to become king. That's right. Yes. Um, So really, the only other um, person who's expected to become king, who's married a commoner, is again Prince William, who keeps popping up in this conversation. So um, Kate Middleton is. You've met Prince William. That's presumably the reason why you keep bringing him up. And you're both Aston Villa supporters. Yes, we, we had a chat. Like, that was as is David when, Cameron, actually. That was back when the three uh, Villa, of you Villa get together. Were, um, were beating Manchester United. The, the three of you should get together and do your own rest is history. Yeah, we should, shouldn't <laughs> we? We get <laughs> Nigel Kennedy and Tom Hanks along. It would be great. <laughs> we could all bleed claret and blue together. Well, I, I think the parallel here. So I think the marriage to Elizabeth Woodville. But, but, I, but Dominic, I just mentioned that because it, I think it emphasises how weird this is, how odd that, and exceptional I agree with you is. completely, Tom. And I think the marriage to Elizabeth Woodville is, is in many ways the absolute most important foundation point for this whole story, yeah. for this podcast. It's a fracture because, point from which the entire structure will kind of Exactly. It's it? so unusual, as you say. Clearly what's happened is that Edward has been has has he is motivated by he's infatuated with elizabeth woodville and i, I think what is so <laughs> fascinating really is. about whoa, this whole story whoa, tom <laughs> but you know what tom what's you the last time you did that impersonation full force was in our six wives of him the eighth podcast yeah and i think what's so exactly interesting about this entire story about the marriage to elizabeth woodville about the succession of a very of a young boy as king is is the parallels with what happens a generation because it's later. a marriage isn't it Marriage because, is absolutely like the heart of this whole story. Because the uh, Elizabeth Woodville is not unlike Anne Boleyn in that she refuses to be, she basically will not be the king's mistress. Edward has a lot of mistresses, but she wants a marriage. Yeah. So he marries her. And it's, that's the point at which, as in the sagas of Henry VIII with the Boleyns and the Seymours and so on, she brings her family because that's what you do. Well, hold on. Let's, uh, so let's look at her family. So who, so who is Elizabeth Woodville? Um, her mother is actually quite classy, isn't she? She's uh, Jacquetta. That's right. Um, claims descent from Charlemagne, um, related to Bart van Loo's Dukes of Burgundy, um, and and she had actually she'd had she'd, she'd had a good marriage. She'd married um, the brother of Henry V, John the Duke of Bedford, but then he dies, and she then marries a guy called Richard Woodville, who's basically yeah. an elite sportsman. That's He's common, but he's an elite sportsman. He's a like great, you. great jouster. Right. Yeah, a, bit, a bit like me, I suppose. Um, but, but he's basically, I mean, he's, he's not, I mean, even no, by the gentry. standards of the English. He's not Aris- ability. Yeah, yeah. So even by the standards of, 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 of English snobbery, he's kind of quite low down the social scale. And really, I suppose that, you know, kind of the intriguing parallel is um, Catherine of Valois, who had married Henry V, who then marries Owen Tudor. He was her yeah, she drops court down chamberlain. a bit of a, a yeah, few so, levels. So kind of she? similar thing. Um, so anyway, so um, Jaquetta marries this guy, Richard Woodville, who is uh, a tremendous jouster. Uh, and he becomes Lord Rivers. He fights at the Battle of Towton against Edward IV, but his partner. Yeah, they're Lancastrians, aren't they, originally? Uh, and, uh, um, yeah. And so uh, Elizabeth, his daughter, she is also married to a Lancastrian, um, Sir, Sir John, John Grey. Grey who had died at the Battle of, of St. Albans in 1461. So back in the Richard of York days. Uh, they got two children. And she's basically, she has a kind of predatory mother-in-law, doesn't she? And so she's, she she decides to, to appeal to the king. And she does that in the full knowledge that basically, you know, woof, woof. She's, but that she has uh, attributes that will appeal to the king. 
Well, she's 28. He's, what is he, 22, I think? So she's a MILF, I believe. Is the- <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I can't believe you've gone there, Tom. Oh, well. Um, anyway, yes. Well, I, I think Edward IV is, uh, you know, just to reiterate, he is a massive lad who allows his libido to lead him. Yeah. And, I suppose and she may- plays her cards very, I mean, she, she plays her cards as Anne Boleyn does, a generation yeah. later. She basically says, no, I have to marry you. That's the deal. He's like, great, let's do it. And when Warwick hears the news, Warwick is absolutely furious because Edward has thrown away the chance of the marriage alliance. He's made Warwick look like an idiot. But also he's, what's happened is that by introducing the Woodville family, because she brings with her inevitably her brothers, her father, the, the kind of... Uh, it's all about networks, isn't it? Medieval politics. It's all about patronage networks. She brings in this whole load of people who are going to need offices and lands and everything, and they upset the balance. And actually, that's the, what are we, 1464. So for 20 years, that balance is basically upset. That's, that's absolutely true. But, but just to stick up for Elizabeth Woodville, I, she, I think she's an incredibly impressive figure. Oh, I'm not so, knocking her. I mean, she so, plays her so cards very think, cleverly. I think she, she's a superb queen. So I think the whole thing, so, so she and Edward get married on May Day, which is, you know, the, the romantic day par excellence. This is the age when Mallory is writing the Mort d'Arthur. There's the great, you know, the great romantic narratives of knights falling in love with ladies. And I think that that provides a kind of context that Edward will, will absolutely use. But, but Elizabeth does as well. She's very, very good at playing the gracious queen. Yeah. She plays um, the part very, the only people, the people who don't like her are their factional rivals. I don't think absolutely. there's any sense that the public yeah, absolutely. have turned against her. But, but, but Elizabeth herself is very alert to basically how impoverished the, her husband's court is. He's, he's a massive spendthrift. I mean, he obviously, he's exactly the kind of guy who blows enormous quantities of, of money on all kinds of stuff. Doublets. Double, pies. So, so, so Elizabeth Woodville recognises that she has to look like a queen. So she does, in, she, she's very, very happy to spend money on looking like a queen, but otherwise mm. she makes economies. You're right, of course. It's the problem that she brings all these kind of relatives that, that is the issue. But she does bring um, one particularly, I think, tremendously cool relative, who's her brother, Anthony Woodville, who in due course will become... Well, um, he's, he's very elder. clever, isn't he? He's a great scholar he's, and so on. He's a, but again, also a great sportsman. So he's a patron of Caxton, you know, who sets up yeah. the, 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 first the first printing, printing press. press. And he's actually translated a whole compendium of sayings of philosophers from the French that is one of the very first books that Caxton publishes. But he also has this tremendous duel with um, a guy called the Bastard of Burgundy. Do you know about this? Oh, yes, I did. Yeah, spend- it's in, yeah, it's it's- in, it's in Bart Van Loo's book. It's in Thomas Penn's book of the Brothers York as well. They seem yes, to have and spent, that as well. They spent about 300 pages organising this massive <laughs> <Yes>. tournament. <laughs> so the, the Bastard of Burgundy, which comes no surprise to anyone who's heard the episode on, on, on the Burgundians, is the son of um, Philip, the, the, the good of Burgundy, who, as Bart reminded us, tended to, to get bastard every time he went on his travels. Um, and, uh, yeah, they, they set up this kind of incredible showcase of um of, of of jousting because the the these are the two, you know the bastard of Antoine the bastard of Burgundy is the greatest jouster in Burgundy and um Anthony Woodville has the reputation as the greatest jouster in 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 England and they have this kind of two-day combat in London um where basically Anthony Woodville wins I mean Edward has to kind of step in and stop it and he's very very cool and he's on his um 
his uh, his tent, he has this phrase "la nonchalance." So he's a, he's a kind of he's a very cool guy. That's very Cameroon, isn't it? To pursue the no, David Cameron I, analogy. I, oh come on! No, I think he's a, no, he's a kind, no, he's a kind of laid back, mellow, smart sportsman. But the thing though, Tom, is that he okay, he is very he's very impressive. He's very clever. He's very you know he's very cultivated and all the rest of it. But because he's from the Parvenu family, that stuff makes enemies. And and the thing is, being a medieval king is all about... You, you don't have absolute power or anything like it. What you have is this very complicated machine and these incredibly convoluted and elaborate and intricate networks of kind of regional loyalties Absolutely. and associations yeah. and... You upset that at your peril. You know, you need to keep that machine ticking along and basically divvying out the rewards, the offices, the lands, and making sure that everybody's happy. And, and, and you know, I mean, you can go down one route and basically pick a side, kill the others or whatever, but then you have to do it really ruthlessly. Otherwise, you have to keep things in balance. And, and you could argue that, I mean, we had quite a few questions about this. Um, is Edward IV a failure? because he basically allows the system to get out of balance. I mean, I suppose I would argue... Yeah, so Peter Davies, could you outline Edward IV's failures in allowing such factionalism to lead to regicide the king who never lost a battle but lost the war? I think, well, I believe, I, wouldn't I, you say, Tom, that, that such factionalism is inherent in the system? You're always going to have yeah. different factions. And keeping them yeah. in balance... For, I mean, Edward keeps them in balance, actually. Well, Quite well, he makes one very big mistake, which in 14... What is it? 1470-71, doesn't he? When the factions okay, get completely yes. out of balance. Which is which is the backdrop for, for why his son, the future Edward V, has to be born in Sanctuary. And perhaps we should um, come to that after a break. Okay. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. 
Right, welcome back to The Rest is History. We are proceeding at a somewhat glacial pace towards the story <laughs> of the princes in the tower. So we're just approaching the moment where the first prince is going to be born. That's Edward V. So, Tom, we ended the just before the break um, talking about Edward IV and factionalism. And obviously Edward IV is going to – he's in for a, a shock because he's offended the, the Earl of Warwick by marrying Elizabeth Woodville. And this is about to – it's basically about to blow up in his face. In 1469, I think, uh, you have the first real signs that the Earl of Warwick has has basically allied with Edward's brother, George, who is the what, the Duke of Clarence. And George and Warwick feel very aggrieved at the intrusion of the Woodvilles into the kind of factional machine, and they're starting to get very restive. And you start to get this sense that there's a kind of there's a great cataclysm coming uh, and then it does come doesn't it in 14 was it 1470 yes um where warwick basically changes sides unbelievably having been as also does clarence false fleeting perjured clarence as shakespeare said has it so warwick's treachery is i mean kind of understandable because um edward has basically shafted him with with this marriage in all kinds of ways. Uh, Clarence, I think, is <laughs> less forgivable. Um, but anyway, so so Ed- Edward, to his astonishment, I mean, it all kind of just melts away incredibly fast. Um, and Edward basically finds that he, despite being king for, for basically a decade and actually playing the, the role of king quite well, he's not very popular. Uh, support yeah. melts away. And he... And his youngest brother, so there are three brothers, Edward the Fourth, George Duke of Clarence, who has sided with Warwick, and the younger brother, Richard, who'll become Duke of Gloucester. In fact, is he Duke of Gloucester by this point? I can't remember. So so Richard, who is who is the youngest brother, doesn't betray Edward, sticks with him, and together they 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 flee England and they go to Burgundy, where yeah. Edward's sister, Margaret, has married Charles the Bold. Who, That's right. Again, listeners may so remember the whole thing is, from is taking the Burgundians place against the the backdrop of this Franco-Burgundian rivalry. So the French are backing a Lancastrian restoration with the Earl of Warwick, and the Burgundians are basically offering Edward the Fourth and his brother Richard sanctuary and time to kind of rebuild their forces. So. You, England is basically prey to some extent to the sort of great power ambitions of France yeah. and Burgundy, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, it's it's with Burgundian support that um, Edward and Richard are able to return to occupy London. Um, there's there's a terrible battle that is fought in Barnet in yeah. North London in this in the very, fog, very heavy fog in the fog. Um, Richard. Um, outflanks Warwick there. Um, there's great slaughter. Warwick is killed. Well, Warwick is very... Do you know, Tom, I, I loved Warwick the Kingmaker when I was a teenager, when I was kind of... Well, when I was kind of 11 or 12 when we did this at school, I was a very passionate admirer of Warwick the Kingmaker, and I've always felt he was very unlucky because don't his soldiers mistake some of their allies in the fog yeah. um, for Yorkists? They and do. they open fire on them, and it all goes horribly wrong, and Warwick is kind of butchered by Yorkist soldiers and it's all to, to me it always seemed a great tragedy that this very impressive magnate and how do you feel now a, you're less less I, of a fan I don't I don't I don't care 
um, I don't. Well, I mean, they're all they're all brutal and horrible, aren't they? Yeah, they're all exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but there's kind of horrible stories of people back in London waiting for news, and people start drifting back, and they've kind of lost their noses and you know, oh god, eyes and kind of horrible well, details. That's medieval battles for you, that's Tom. Medieval battles I mean, for you, yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't get involved if you want to keep your nose. So that's what. So that and by this point, also we should say that Clarence has again switched sides. And has yeah, been reconciled with Edward. So it's he's just, very much, I think, it's fair to say, not a friend of the show. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't think you want Clarence as your friend. No, because you know he'd stab you in the back at some point. He definitely would. Well, he's he's permanently aggrieved, isn't he? Yes. I mean, he's got a he's he really is the sort of um, the middle. Uh, he he has a terrible sense of entitlement and of victimhood, and everybody's against him. He's, he's like the one in the Godfather. Yes, yeah, Fre- well, Fredo. Fredo. Yeah, he's Fredo. He's actually the classic middle. Brother, yeah. as I think Fredo is. Yeah. Yes, I think he is. I wonder if that was kind of inspiration as well, because it's all there in Shakespeare. Yeah. Al Pacino kissing Fredo, I know. And Al Pacino, Fredo. Al Pacino made yeah. a whole film about Richard III. So who knows? Yes, he did. Maybe it, Looking for Richard. Yeah. So, so, so it, maybe, all connects, it, all connects, it all connects, It all connects. Get Al Pacino on your Aston Villa <laughs> podcast with Cameron and Prince William. <laughs> Dynamite. Um, so uh, so that's Warwick knocked out of the way, but there's still the issue of uh, Margaret of Anjou and um, her son, Edward, who she sees as the Prince of Wales, and they need to be got rid of. And Edward goes storming off, um, and they kind of shadow each other up and down uh, the line of uh, the seven. Um, and they they finally meet at Tewkesbury. Yeah. And there is a, a, bloodbath, a, a absolute, absolute bloodbath. Blood and um, Edward, the Prince of Wales, is killed. Margaret of Anjou flees. And this is when Henry VI is finally dispatched in the tower. Yeah. Uh, now and- we, we mentioned that in the first half. I think that's it's kind of shocking that Edward the Sixth, Henry the Sixth, who is lost his mind and just a sort of doddering, sort of doted, that he's killed. But it completely makes sense that Edward the Fourth does this because Henry the Sixth is a focus for opposition. You know, the Lancastrians have had one comeback attempt that has failed. It sort of makes sense that Edward the Fourth now gives the order, basically as soon as the Battle of Tewkesbury is over. Okay. Get rid of it, Henry the Sixth. So in, you know, in, in Shakespeare's play Henry the Sixth Part Three, it's Richard yes. who does it. It's Richard but who that, murders him. There's absolutely no evidence whatsoever well, for that. Well, th- there is. There is. Uh, Richard is said to have been present in the Tower of London when Henry is killed. Uh, yeah, but the Tower of London is a is a course, major of is a major complex. Yes, of is course. the major kind of complex in London. So of course, of course, there are probably lots of people present in the Tower. In yes, the different buildings. But, but, of the Tower but then of he is the son. You know, he is the the uh, the the youngest and most trusted brother of the king, he may, he may, I, I would have thought he probably was complicit in the murder of Henry VI. But I, I there is, there is no question that the order came from Edward IV. There's, and there's no, there's no specific reason to think that, apart from later Tudor propaganda and Shakespeare, to think that Richard wasn't. I mean, it's perfectly I think plausible. I think there is. That Henry the, of course there Edward is. IV, of course there is. He's Richard. He was is, probably, Richard he is Edward's <laughs> trusted younger brother and he's present in the tower when henry the sixth is killed it's a major major decision it's a major policy step i think richard absolutely would, would have been complicit in it I don't, but see, i don't I think, think but i don't i th- i don't think the idea that you get in shakespeare that richard comes galloping back from the from the battle of tewkesbury kind of cackling and limping yeah. and dragging his hunchback and murders him just for the fun of it i i, I don't by that kind of model of, of Richard as a, 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 a villain. But I do buy the idea of, of Richard as a ruthless henchman 
of well, a ruthless king, because it's the ruthless age. Here's where I'd meet you halfway, Tom. I would say, if Richard wants to be part of the regime, he's 18 years old. Um, if he wants to be part of his brother's regime, and obviously he does, then clearly he's complicit in the decisions taken by Edward IV, as are all the other Yorkists. Yes. I but mean, I basically, every all the, see, all the Yorkist elite must know that Henry the Fourth, Henry the Sixth, rather, is about to be rubbed out. They think it's reasonable. You know, they fought this long war. There's, it's it's madness to keep him on as a sort of focus for opposition. Get rid of him. Uh, that the idea that Richard would have personally carried it out seems to me un implausible. I think I'm not saying he personally you know, he personally killed him, but that he yeah. may well have had a kind of supervisory role. And the reason that I think that actually Richard's role. It's probably uh, greater than that of, say, other Yorkist henchmen, is that Richard becomes Edward's, you know, is Edward's most trusted partner in rule. But he becomes his most trusted partner because he went into exile with absolutely. him. Absolutely. he's a blood relative. Yes, absolutely. Surely. Absolutely. I mean, he doesn't need to have but, killed but, 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 Henry VI for that to be. I think it's un improbable that he wouldn't have done. I mean, it's well, it's a key. It's a key. Should step. we just talk a tiny bit about Richard at this point? So he's 18 years old. What we know about him. Is that he is he is sl small, slight. He probably has scoliosis, scoliosis. Yeah. Um, not a massive hunchback or anything like that. But he's he's he definitely is not he's not so sort of to use a Shakespearean word, kind of misshapen that he can't fight in battle and be a very effective warrior. He's very serious. He's very pious. Yeah. Um, he has all these religious books that he annotates, kind of almost obsessively. Yeah. Uh, he spends a lot of time in the north, so he's effectively a northerner. Well, yeah, well, he becomes it, doesn't he? Because because when Edward gets um, back on the throne, um, he sends. So so Clarence and Richard have both married daughters of Warwick, which has created a lot of bad blood, hasn't he? Because Clarence didn't want Richard to marry a Warwick daughter, no. because he knew it would mean sharing the great Warwick, the Neville inheritance. And so there is, again, a kind of fracture point there, which Edward solves by basically giving Clarence, um, you know, a great chunk of lands, including Warwick's lands in the Midlands, and Richard gets installed as um, effectively the ruler of the North. Yeah. And Richard is much more effective than Clarence. And yeah. Clarence ends up you know, notoriously... He gets put in the tower, and and as in the Shakespeare, you know, the version in the Shakespeare play is that he gets drowned in a butt of Malmsey. He gets dispatched, but Richard Richard proves himself a, a loyal on the, and on the able of Malmsey. Servant. Yeah, do you know what Malmsey is? It's a kind of wine, isn't it? Do you know where it comes from? Uh, Malmsey. No, no, I don't. No, <laughs> I always thought it was Malmsey. <laughs> Malmsey. It comes from uh, Monemvasia. Oh, of course it does. Yes, in the Peloponnese. Yeah. Yes. So of I course. went to the Monemvasia on holiday. Uh, this summer, last summer, did you taste we bought, we bought we bought a bottle of it. I have it downstairs <laughs> in the kitchen. It's a kind of sweet wine. It's very nice. Is it? Yeah, it's the. There's a now a producer in. I'm, I should be taking money for this. There's a producer in Monemvasia that is now producing once again proper Monemvasian Malmsey wine. Clarence, so there you go. The Clarence vintage. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, in fact, in the shop. <laughs> That was owned by. They sort of muttered something about there was a very famous Englishman who was drowned in it, and and I knew the story. Uh, so it was, a, it was a lovely moment. Anyway, you had to be there. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, anyway, yes, he's so that leaves Richard really sort of un, unchallenged, doesn't it? Yeah, and he's Edward's... very he's a very competent administrator, uh, yeah. and he's very he's very pious. Um, 
And I think all of these are absolutely, it's perfectly possible for him to be a competent administrator, to be very pious, and also, when needs be, to be incredibly ruthless. Well, because I, I, I don't you have think to be if you want to survive in the game. Absolutely. I don't think that there is any inherent contrast there. Yeah, I um, agree completely. And, and it's actually 20th or 20th first century back projection to see so many of these people. Oh, he's a good guy. He's, he's, good, evil. he's a baddie. They're yeah. all involved in what is a very, very frightening, risky, dangerous business. And they haven't chosen it. They've been born into it and they're stuck in it. There's well, no option. Kind of the fourth has kind of chosen it. I suppose he has, I mean, but he most of them, of, you know, um, Richard, let's say, is is born in the midst of the wars. It's it, you know, it's all kicking off when he was a boy. He's he's not no real way of escaping it unless he decided to be a monk or something or to sort of emigrate to Iceland. Well, I mean, and talking of, really that, of being born into it, of course, we should go back to um, the ostensible <laughs> subject of this podcast, <laughs> which are the princes in the tower. Yeah. Um, so Edward, you know, he'd been. In, in sanctuary with his mother Elizabeth Woodville, obviously when so this uh, is when, yeah, Ed, back little in Edward, not Edward the little fourth. Edward. Yeah. So he comes out, um, all is well, um, and uh, Edward the fourth obviously wants to, to to train him up to be as good an heir as he possibly can, um, and he becomes Prince of Wales in 1471, so the year after his return, um, and then in 1473 when he is three years old. <laughs> He, yeah. he becomes president of the Council of Wales and the Marches. <laughs> I mean, I don't think you need that much experience to go in Wales. <laughs> well, there go all our Welsh listeners. Um, <laughs> and um, he's based at Ludlow Castle, which um, listeners to very, our very 12 Days of Christmas uh, episode will remember was a particular Yorkist stronghold. But um, I'll also remember the castle where um, Arthur Tudor, Henry Tudor's... Yeah son was to die so this is obviously a, a standard thing you do yeah. you send your heir to basically establish your presence in wales in the marches um but crucially tom i think an interesting sort of straw in the wind or a step towards the tragedy that's going to come later he sends him with anthony woodville that tremendously impressive person that you talked about earlier because he's impressive but, i think i think not also, just because is, he's not just because he's a woodville brother but because yeah. he is he's a kind of classy guy to have as your as your tutor because he's very very learned but he's also very good at, at knocking people off horses but i think tom cru- crucially in making that decision when edward sends his son with anthony woodville he is kind of ensuring a, a, a longevity to the kind of woodville story because he it means that when his son succeeds him he will be very close to, he he will understandably be very close to the woodvilles and the woodvilles will cl- clearly going to play a significant part in any subsequent regime. Well, every every king has to divide and rule, so it, it's always a risk for a king. And, and Edward knows this because he's already been sent into exile once. That that you have to have regional magnates to look after chunks of your kingdom. So you need, yeah. you know, our man in the north, our man in the Midlands, our man in Wales. You need that, but at the same time, you can't afford any one of them to build up a monopoly yeah. of power. So you have to, if you're a king, create rival power bases. Obviously, Clarence and Richard, as brothers, are absolutely, you know, they have rank and status and now, and, and now they've been given regional power bases. Um, the Woodvilles can't possibly rival that. But by giving his son, the Prince of Wales, to be brought up... Um, by one of the Woodvilles, 
Edward is, I think, quite deliberately trying to build the Woodvilles up as a kind of counterpoint to his brothers. Yeah. Uh, well, and so and, and he's acting Edward, on the assumption that he's going to live. As about, that's exactly what I was going to say. Edward presumably thinks he's going to live to the age of 55 or something. You know, decent age for a medieval king. Possibly he could live 10, 20 years longer than that. So in a way, I suppose you would say, yeah, he's, I mean, he could, he could outlive Anthony Woodville. Um, his son may succeed when he's fallen. Also, but also, I think it, it's it's not just entire entirely duped down to cynicism. I think when you look at the prescriptions that Edward gives, Edward the Fourth gives to um, Anthony Woodville, it's rather touching. Bearing in mind, you know, Edward the Fourth's own character, so he's very very keen that Anthony Woodville raise uh, the Prince of Wales um, in virtuous learning. Yes, which, I love all this. You know, which the, which. Um, you know, Woodville has written books about philosophy. He, yeah. He's well qualified to do that, to teach him in sport, to ensure that there's no swearing. Um, and then towards evening, the prince's attendants, Ed- Edward specifies, are to enforce themselves to make him merry and joyous towards his bed. I think that is, I think that's. But it's interesting, isn't it, that Edward IV doesn't want his son to be like him because he says, I want no one in the household to be a swearer, brawler, yeah. backbiter, common hazarder, adulterer, or user of words of ribaldry. Yeah, which is um, everything. Which Edward basically is. rules himself out. <laughs> which may well be why he's, he's packed him off. Um, but is that, do you not think there's a, I am so struck by the sort of Henry VIII parallels yeah. because Henry yeah. VIII is a terribly sentiment. He's both ruthless, but he's also very sentimental. And he, I think Edward IV is like that too. He's, yeah. everybody always says how affable he is. You know, his, his sign is the sun and splendor, the sun in splendor. One of his mottos is kind of comfort and joy. He's quite a sort of, he's got quite a kind of rose-tinted view of things. Don't you think, Edward IV? I mean, I know he's a bastard and he kills people. <laughs> yeah. But obviously when he think about his son, he wants his son to kind yeah, of, I think you know, so. not have anything, and no swearing, all that it, yeah, sort of stuff. Yeah. No, I, I, I think that's true. I think that's true. And actually it goes well, doesn't it? The, 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 it the does. upbringing yes, it seems does. to go absolutely yeah. swimmingly. And Everybody says that the fifth, the little, the little boy is a... Tremendous little fellow, you know. And he's got a brother. So, I mean, you know, Edward, unlike Henry VIII, has absolutely done his duty. I mean, there's actually <laughs> the brilliant thing when um, when he uh, married uh, Elizabeth Woodville and his mother, Cecily, was absolutely furious about it. And Ed- Edward's reply to, to his mother was to say, well, neither of us is like to be barren. And that <laughs> absolutely turns out to be the case. Um, Elizabeth yeah. gives Edward... You know, exactly what a queen is supposed to do a large number of heirs one of whom is of course is um edward the prince of wales but the other is um richard uh, yeah richard um who's born in shrewsbury who is um actually his sixth child edward's sixth child but his and second we know son. virtually nothing about him well we know that he's he's made duke of york in 1474 and then in 1478 um uh, when he is what five he gets married. He marries. He marries. He yes, marries he the Countess of Norfolk. He's also five. So yeah, so but he also he's widowed quite quickly, isn't he? He's yeah. widowed by by the, about the age of seven or something. Yeah, so he's he's packing um, it in. He's, he's had an active he's life. Seen the world. He's seen a lot of the world. <laughs> a lot. Yeah, exactly. So, so all he's of played. This, all of, he's played by Brian Blessed in the first series of the Black Adder. Is he? Because, so and of course, the, it's an alternative reality, time? isn't it? It's where, where an alternative reality yes. in which yes. he survives and becomes king. Yeah. Well, like, yeah, um, yeah. Um, and, and of course, played by me at the beginning of uh, of this episode. 
Yeah. Um, I, are you equating yourself with Brian Blessed? The, very different voices there, I thought. You're well, I, I, I'm boy. the young Richard and Brian Blessed is obviously the, uh, the older one. Um, right. Anyway, so all of, the, all of this, it all looks to be going well. For, for yeah. the York, for the Yorkists, they've basically they you know the the the, the Yorkist regime is absolutely secure. There are the Lancastrians have been wiped out. The only conceivable uh, line left is is the Tudors. Um, you know this but, obscure but I mean, Welsh squire who married a French yeah. it, it, queen, as you say, so obscure so, and, and so unlikely yeah, doesn't register. So it it looks as though the Yorkist regime is absolutely secure, and Edward the Fourth is the model of a king he's you know everything that we've been saying but the problem is again a bit like his his grandson henry the eighth very like his grandson he overdoesn't yeah too much fun too much fun um so he's he gets increasingly fat again like henry (laughs) and there's this whole kind of by you know by um 14 by the 1480s the early 1480s He's mutton dressed as lamb. I mean, he's still ordering all these That's harsh. <laughs> these kind of groovy teenage fashions, but he just looks, I mean, he looks like kind yeah. of sausage. <laughs> yeah, people kind of, well, he's Elvis, isn't he? <laughs> he's Elvis, he's Elvis yes. in the 1980s. Yeah, Las Vegas. squeezed into so, his leather or his so he's, suit. he's he has this, he's always been a man for a binge, but suppose, he, I mean, there's stuff, there were records, aren't there, of their sort of orders from apothecaries. And he's ordering an awful lot of kind of drugs, but he's also ordering all these emetics that are supposedly he takes during meals. So, he, so that he can stuff some more down. Yeah. 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 So that he can have six courses instead of three or whatever. And Dominic, does uh, it turn out well? No, it doesn't, Tom. It doesn't turn out well. But but the interesting thing is, it's not like people say he's a great balloon, he's going to burst at some point. People are genuinely shocked when at Easter 1483, he falls ill. And there's still some... Nobody really knows what was wrong with him. Some people say he had a stroke. Some people say that he had at some point contracted malaria earlier in his life. Um, we don't know. But anyway, he, he gets a, catches a fever and he dies. And I think this is absolutely crucial for the story. And this is what makes it different from, let's say, the death of Henry VIII, who also succeeded by a little boy in Edward VI. A key difference is that Edward IV dies very quickly. So within, what, a week, a couple of weeks? Mm. So people haven't had time to prepare the ground, to get their kind of networks yeah. ready, to work out the balance of forces. So by the 9th of April, on the, he dies on the 9th of April, and his two sons are 12 and 9. And immediately you've got problems. Yeah. And there are two key people who um, are, are not at court when he dies, and that is the young Edward V's two uncles. So uh, Anthony Woodville in Ludlow with the Prince of Wales himself and of course his surviving uncle Richard of Gloucester who is up, Who's in, the up in the north he's up been the fighting north. the Scots hasn't he so that immediately Berry. the question come you know the questions raised is Edward is dead Edward the fourth is dead his son is young how What's are all the various Yorkist factions how are they going to negotiate this youthful king and that, I think, is a question that we should leave to answer until tomorrow. Oh, the tension. It's such a cliffhanger, Tom. A huge, huge I can't tension. believe you would do this to the audience. But Gotta be they done. love it. Got to be done. Yeah. So we will see you tomorrow uh, when we will talk about um, Princess in the Tower Part 2. 
uh, when the princes actually will end up in the towers <laughs> at last. <laughs> at least they've at least we've managed to get them born and alive. Yes, exactly. I mean, that's something. Exactly. Right, it's like Tristram Shandy, isn't it? The whole thing. <laughs> yeah. um, so we will see you then. Bye bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hold up. 